This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'd like to note at the top of this program that we expect to speak at some length with political activist Jerry Polakoff. Jerry has decades of experience both covering political events and how those political events specifically are covered it themselves by the media. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. But I'd like to start today's program uh, as we used to do, in this case with some quotes and quips. Here's one we recently stumbled upon from French singer Amanda Lear. I hate to spread rumors, but what else can one do with them? And then there's this great one from Bertrand Russell. The fundamental cause of the trouble is that in the modern world, the stupid are cocksure, while the intelligent are full of doubt. And here's one appropriate for the talk I'm going to listen to this evening, that of Tim Wu, speaking at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Although I don't know whether Tim Wu actually shares this exact opinion with Albert Einstein, Father Relativity once said, Technological progress is like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal. And although we've expressed some doubts about our new governor, Gavin Newsom, here in California, we've expressed some doubts about whether he is something more than a lightweight. Here's some quotes from the governor that he gave in his State of the State speech, which I think may clarify where he really stands in terms of gravitas, I suppose you might say. To quote from an article by Paul Rogers, In a major shift in one of the largest proposed public works projects in state history, California Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday announced he does not support former Governor Jerry Brown's $19 billion plan to build two massive tunnels under the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta to make it easier to move water from the north to the South. Newsom, in his first State of the State speech since taking office, said he instead will pursue a smaller plan for the project. Quote, Let me be direct about where I stand. I do not support the Twin Tunnels, but we can build on the important work that's already been done. That's why I do support a single tunnel. It doesn't say that he then paused for laughter, but we hope so. Noted Mr. Rogers, such a scaled-back project could cost roughly $10 billion, according to estimates done by the state and water agencies last year. The decision was largely a victory for environmental groups and Delta political leaders and a setback for the Los Angeles water officials who had supported the plan. The Delta Tunnels plan was begun under Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. It called for building two tunnels 35 miles long and 40 feet high under the Delta. Critics, as you know, Dado, if you've been listening to this program over the past few years, have called the tunnel plan a huge boondoggle that would eventually allow large agribusiness interests in the San Joaquin Valley, as well as urban users in Los Angeles, to take more water out of the Delta, regardless of what promises are made now. At the end of the article, Paul Rogers noted that Newsom did not explain what size the one tunnel would be, its configuration, or its cost. 
Any significant changes to the original plan are likely to require the state to draw up a new environmental impact statement, which could take years. Well, that part we like. Of course, writing in the Los Angeles Times, George Skelton liked what the governor had to say. He noted that Governor Brown was obsessed with twin tunnel vision, whereas Newsom has a more realistic view. Of course, some might like to point out that since he hasn't specified how big the one tunnel would be as compared to the twin tunnels, it's hard to guesstimate how much water they're planning to move south, except I think we can guesstimate that the answer to that is plenty. From my archives, I have a lovely picture here of Gavin and his then-wife, Kimberly Guilfoyle, standing in front of a backdrop of the Transamerica Twin Tower, of the Transamerica Tower, not a twin tower. That article, which I have, dating back to 2003, notes that Newsom, son of a well-connected state judge, became a millionaire by his early 30s by launching wine, food, and real estate ventures backed by oil heir and family friend Gordon Getty. Anyway, we did question uh, Mr. Newsom's judgment at times when he was the mayor of San Francisco. Evidently, his wife also questioned his judgment because she left him for Donald Trump Jr. We ask, is this an upgrade? We're not sure. We would like to cite the article in The Economist about San Francisco, which did note in its text that the number of unsheltered homeless people in the city rose by 48% between 2010 and 2017. Of course, I don't know, Gavin hadn't been there for a while, I guess, by 2017. I was dismayed to read that among the nation's 20 largest cities, San Francisco now has the highest rate of property crime, which includes things like theft, shoplifting, and vandalism. In 2017, there were about 30,000 incidents of theft from cars, triple the number in 2010. The Economist started the piece by noting that there were two surprises greeting the first-time visitor to California's Bay Area. The first is that Silicon Valley is not a special place, but a mini-region with no sign advertising when one has arrived or left. The second is that despite its beauty and wealth, San Francisco is one of America's grittiest cities. In some neighborhoods, people openly use drugs, defecate on the street, and flagrantly steal. Uh, We can't lay that all at Gavin Newsom's feet, but, uh, well, I don't know. Let's move on. We frankly can't resist articles that have May in the title. So when we came across a piece in New Scientist noting that Tyrannosaurus Rex may have played a role in spreading fruit seeds, we, we had to read on. Now, as we all know, the king of the dinosaurs was a famed carnivore, but in gobbling down plant-eating prey, well, he might have wound up with some of the fruit that the herbivores ate inside of him, which he then may have spread around with his dung as he moved about. These speculations apparently come from Tetsuro Yokoshawa at the National Institute for Environmental Studies in Tsukuba, Japan. Yes, he was wondering about carnivores spreading the seeds of herbivores, whatever. New scientist notes, as there is no information on T. rex's gut, Yokoshawa and his colleagues turned to his closest living relatives, birds. They used information on the body weight and diet of 51 living bird species to build a computer model that estimates how long seeds are retained in a bird's gut before being expelled. They then extrapolated onto Tyrannosaurus rex. We don't know whether this fulfills the old computer dictum of garbage in, garbage out, but we have some suspicions. 
We don't have too much time today to talk about the Trump follies, except that I had to laugh at a couple of things that were sent to me. Many people were posting the statement that Donald Trump says his life has gotten worse since he has become president, which caused numerous people to say, God, funny thing is, my life has gotten worse since he's become president. What can you say about a man that declares a national emergency that no one else can discern and then apparently goes on vacation? And inspired by Donald J. Trump, federal authorities um, are cracking down on suspicious individuals, including this amazing story. This comes from the NPR website. Two women who were detained and asked to show identification after speaking Spanish in a convenience store in Montana are suing the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, saying the CPB agent violated their constitutional rights when he detained them and asked to see their identification. Anna Suda and Martha Hernandez, American citizens who were born in Texas and California, respectively, were questioned as they attempted to buy groceries in Harve, Montana, last May. They captured video of the encounter, which began inside the town pump gas station and convenience store. They were detained for 40 minutes. In the footage, CPB agent Paul O'Neill is seen telling one of the women, Ma'am, the reason I asked you for your ID is because I came in here and saw you guys are speaking Spanish, which is very unheard of up here. The article noted that when it was posted last spring, the video raised new questions about the Trump administration's methods for carrying out a crackdown on people who have entered the U.S. illegally from the southern border. The article points out that the two friends had lived in Harvard for several years, working as certified nursing assistants in a local medical center and raising their children. They say they had left work, gone to a gym, and were waiting to pay for their milk and eggs when Hernandez said hello to O'Neill in the checkout line, and he replied by saying she had a strong accent. He then asked the pair where they'd been born, leading Suda to ask, Are you serious? Dead serious, O'Neill responded, according to the suit. Suda told the agent she'd been born in El Paso. Hernandez says she was born in El Centro, California. That didn't satisfy O'Neill, who, quote, demanded that the two provide him with identification and refused to let them pay for their groceries until they complied, the suit states. O'Neill then took the women outside in his CPB Jeep. At that point, they started using their phones to film what was happening. As they did that, O'Neill radioed in their names and dates of birth. When one of the women asked whether they were being detained because of our profiles, O'Neill replied, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's the fact that has to do with that you guys were speaking Spanish in the store, in a state where it's predominantly English-speaking, okay? So is it illegal to speak Spanish in Montana? Suda asked O'Neill. Well, ma'am, it's not illegal. It's just very unheard of up here, the agent said. After O'Neill's supervisor arrived, Suda asked whether they would have been detained if they'd been speaking French. For reference, Harv is about 20 miles from the U.S.-Canadian border. No, we don't do that, the supervisor replied, according to the court document. The article concluded by noting that contrary to the agent's statement that Spanish isn't spoken often in Harv, the lawsuit states that a local radio station broadcasts in Spanish. And despite having a population of fewer than 10,000 people, the town is home to a strong and vibrant Latino community. All right, joining us, as mentioned at the top of the program at this point, would be political writer, political activist, and all-round gadfly, Jerry Polakoff, who's been on this show in the past. It's high time we brought him back on again to do what he can to help us connect the political dots out there. Welcome back, Jerry. Good to be back. It's been a while. It has. I wanted to start with the fact that um, there's been a joint statement issued by a bunch of people like yourself interested in, um, well, JFK case and some of the other political assassinations that have taken place in America. It's a call to action to get things 
restarted. You're a signatory, along with 10 other people that have been on this program. You as well. Uh, yes, I think so anyway. But let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about that and then work our way back to uh, the decades and then come forward again. Um, do you think this has a chance of getting things uh, ramped up? My instinctual answer would be no. But David Talbot, who wrote two books about the uh, John Kennedy assassination, who was the founder of Salon Magazine, was the one that started this project. And if you had told me when he started it that he was going to get people like Bobby Kennedy and his sister and multiple people around, you know, that, that were close to John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Malcolm X, it's a staggering list he put together. It is. He's got and Daniel Ellsberg, people like Dr. Robert McClellan that worked on Kennedy, people like Daniel Ellsberg, Peter Dale Scott. It, it's quite an assembly of people. It's amazing. And I think the most important name, actually is Barbara Kennedy Townsend, because, you know, Bobby Kennedy has been actively involved in this for a long time and has made no secret of the fact that he doesn't believe the Warren Report or doesn't believe he, that Sir Hunt killed his father. Townsend has never said anything publicly, and she's a former member of Congress, and she's very well respected, and media and the political establishment has done all they could to discredit uh, Bobby Jr. Right. There's never been anything like that against her. So that, I think, really adds credibility to this list. You know, they like to say, you know, if there was a conspiracy behind these assassinations, why doesn't the family speak up? Well, <laughs> they're speaking up. Well, if this is going to get anywhere, we're going to need some help from the mainstream media. And, and you have written at some length, I think, about the failures of the bulk of the American media when it comes to this case. Can you summarize how bad it's been? Because I think it's fair to say it's, it's been pretty bad. I would like to say, and, and Russ Baker mentioned this in an article the other day, you know, one of our major obstacles through the years has been the Washington Post. The Washington Post did a major story about a week after this became public, after we issued the press release, a major story. They're alone among the U.S. mainstream media, and a very positive story about what we were doing. And then last week they printed another really surprisingly strong piece questioning the official version of the Robert Kennedy assassination and questioning whether Sirhan actually uh, killed him. And they cited Lisa and, Pease's new book. Yeah, and we've never seen anything like that from the Washington Post. Now, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of Jeff Bezos, but maybe he's not going to be as much of an obstructionist as the Post has been in the past. And if the Washington Post starts covering this stuff, it could force the rest of the media to do it. I, I agree with Russ Baker yeah. that this was a phenomenal development, and it's nothing that any of us would have expected. Well, let's talk about the Washington Post. Ben Bradley was a personal friend of JFK's, and yet he admitted, I think, later in life that he sort of squashed any any criticism of, of the Warren Report and any criticism of, of the fact that there's more to the story. And I have my own story about Ben Bradley that I think is terribly interesting. But when you look back at the early, you know, the days after the assassination, um, there was a tremendous amount of influence exerted by the FBI, um, the CIA behind the scenes, people that were 
uh, clearly media assets to control the story and to play it down, and from the White House, and to play down the possibility of conspiracy. From day one, the media narrative was Lee Harvey Oswald did it all by himself. That wasn't really the narrative in Europe, but it was the narrative here. If I could mention for a moment, the, the, the day the Warren Report was published, they were extolling its virtues in the New York Times of all uh, thousands of pages of documents that no one could have possibly even read yet. And they were saying, oh, no, they, they did it right. They printed the entire Warren Report as a supplement to the New York Times. A few days later, they came out with a book called The Witnesses. Yes. With a glowing forward by uh, Anthony Lewis. All of the top you know, names at the Times were just glowing, and we, we know now that they were working closely with the Warren Commission. But, you know, you look at the witnesses. The witnesses were supposed to be an objective synopsis of the 26 volumes. Well, anytime anybody, any witness mentioned a shot from the front, that was edited out. When people mentioned a bullet hole in Kennedy's back rather than his neck, which is where we know it was, that was edited out. Anything that might have led one to question the official version was edited out of the testimony. Now, I would love to know how the New York Times could have known enough to even accomplish that bread and that editing. And I've maintained from day one that that book was written to written by the staff of the Warren Commission, because it would have been impossible for the New York Times to have known enough to edit that book. Yeah, David Talbot's manifesto here starts out on, well, number seven is, the corporate media, with its own myriad connections to the national security establishment, aided the cover-up with its rush to embrace the Warren Report and discorn any journalists or researchers who raised questions about the official story. And that's just God's truth. Exactly. And I told you this. I, I spoke to a class in Philadelphia that's run by a friend of mine at the University of the Arts. I brought a couple of articles along with me just to illustrate some of the articles that I thought his class should read. But it occurred to me as I was looking at the, these that these articles really connect a lot of dots and explain what happened. I mean, we know that the media coverage of the assassinations, all of the assassinations, has been incredibly dishonest and very selective and, in some cases, manipulative. Well, not that many people have ever heard of Operation Mockingbird. Right. Operation Mockingbird was created by Frank Wisner, who was the first director of the Office of Special Projects of the CIA. It was designed to infiltrate and subvert and control the media. And when you look at this, and I was looking at this again just today. You look at the names of the people that were involved in Mockingbird. I like to tell people that if they study the role of the media in the Kennedy assassination, it's the best example they will ever see that Operation Mockingbird was wildly successful. One of the people involved in forming it, who was recruited by Wisner, was Philip Graham, who has owned the Washington Post. The Washington Post and the New York Times and Time, Inc., were major participants, knowing participants in the cover-up. And you look at these, these people, J. Russell Wiggins, who is the executive director of the Washington Post, Stuart Alsop and Joseph uh, Alsop, two of the major uh, columnists of their day, both yes. of whom wrote often about it was a lone assassin. James Reston of the New York Times was very involved in all the coverage that the New York Times did. 
well, I want to throw out William well, F. Buckley. Not only was he like you considered a journalistic asset, he was actually in the CIA. <laughs> oh yes, he was, and several of these people were. And and actually, the person who ended up running Operation Mockingbird was Cord Meyer. Interestingly enough, his wife was a uh, one of JFK's mistress, and apparently somebody that that Kennedy really fell for, and she apparently had a lot to do with driving Kennedy to the left. Meyer was recruited by Alan Dulles, and there have now been at least two books that suggest that Alan Dulles, who had been head of the CIA, and was fired by John Kennedy, and uh, after the Bay of Pigs, became a member of the Warren Commission, and was very, was at all the executive sessions, and really uh, steered a lot of the testimony in a lot of the executive sessions. He persuaded Cord Meyer to run Mockingbird. Ben Bradley, I will tell you a story about Ben Bradley. I used to be very good friends with Harold Weisberg, who is no longer with us. He wrote all of the early Whitewash series. Um, his first book about the assassination actually came out before the Warner Report did. And his book, Whitewash, he had notes that suggested that the book review editor at the Washington Post was going to be writing a very favorable review, and then he, the way Harold interpreted it, he later said that he had been ordered not to do it, and Harold assumed that J. Russell Wiggins, who was the uh, managing editor, had been the one who did that. <laughs> and it's a long story, I won't go into the whole thing, but the book review editor denied any of this after Harold wrote about it. And I corresponded with him because his denial didn't seem to uh, mesh with the notes that, that Harold had. And the bottom line was, eventually he wrote to me, he was writing a book in Spain, and he eventually wrote to me because he could see that I had pretty much undone his denial. And he wrote that he had an active collaboration with Benjamin Bradley when he took, did book reviews. And he said, and if I was writing about belles lettres or novels, it was strictly my domain, but I didn't know that much about politics. Uh -huh. So I would discuss political books with Ben Bradley. And this was a direct quote. He said, it was in an editorial meeting with Benjamin Bradley, not J. Russell Wiggins, where it was decided that I would review no books on the Kennedy assassination. Wow. I'm sure when, in your lecture you, you brought the Carl Bernstein classical article, which we plugged on this show many times. We should plug it again. He wrote it in 1976, and it still holds up pretty well as a look at the, the collaboration between the intelligence agencies, in this case the CIA, and, and the media. You know, it's funny, because if you read about Operation Mockingbird, I wrote in my first published article was in 1971 in The Realist. And it regarded the role of the New York Times. It got into all of the media, but it particularly uh, centered on the New York Times. And I interviewed most of the people that I wrote about and got them on the record, uh, often contradicting each other. But I probably mentioned 30 journalists in that article. Um, I'm somebody who likes to let readers connect their own dots. So I never said, boy, look at all these... Uh, CIA assets that are writing about the Kennedy assassination. I just <laughs> wrote what they did. And that was five years before uh, Bernstein's article came out in right. Rolling Stone. 
and almost every journalist I mentioned was identified as a CIA asset by Bernstein. Wow. Some of these people, uh, one of them was drawing a blank in his name. He was a journalist in Miami who wrote some of the early uh, stories about Lee Oswald and his membership in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. That had to come straight from the CIA. Was that Hal Hendricks? Hal Hendricks, yes. Walter Pincus, who was the, uh, they used to call him the CIA uh, journalist in, in residence at the Washington Post. Isn't he still uh, there, or did he just retire recently? He was writing stuff a few he, years he, ago. He's not there anymore, but he was there until not that Very long recently. Ago. Yeah. yeah, and he was identified as a CIA asset by Bernstein. You know, the interesting thing, I don't know that anybody has ever written about that. I had a copy of the Rolling Stone article, but I could not find it. You know, when the Internet finally became a reality, I went online, and you can usually find anything on the Internet. You couldn't find that the the uh, Bernstein piece. It was nowhere to be found. Hmm. You couldn't find reprints of the Rolling Stone article. That article was disappeared, hmm. and it only finally became publicly available because Bernstein put it up on his own website. Wow! Before that, you could not find that article. It, they just made it go away, and it's an incredibly important article still today. You know, I mean, it, it's uh, it was written twenty forty five years ago. Most people know the names in this article, and it's just, uh, I mean, you're looking at uh, Henry Luce sure. or the, of Time Life, Arthur Hayes Salzberger of the New York Times, uh, Dorothy Schiff of the New York Post, and James Copley of Copley News Service. And it just goes on and on and on. It, it, it's uh, Claire Booth Luce also of Time Inc., Tom Braden, who was a syndicated columnist. He used to be on Crossfire. It was just like he's a CIA. He's, and he was the liberal. He was the liberal guy. Yeah, and he did work for the CIA. Sure. And he was renowned at the time for, or he actually wrote an article, and it was entitled, and I kid you not, I'm glad the CIA is amoral. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one other document that I really think helps connect the dots is when you look at the uh, at Operation Mockingbird, and you look at the Bernstein article, and a document that came out of the CIA uh, in 1967. 67 the, uh, was when the public was st really starting to question the Warren Commission. Uh, it had lost all credibility. There were articles coming out. There were uh, congressional moves to reopen the case. And out of the CIA comes a document called Concerning Criticism of the Warren Report. Now, you know, these days we read about conspiracy theorists all the time. It's a pejorative term. Uh, the media just brands people conspiracy theorists. And by definition, that means they don't have to be taken seriously. That phrase became popular. It was basically coined by the CIA in this 1967 document. And something I never noticed until I took a closer look at it last week, there's a little, in, in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a little box, and it's where the document number is supposed to be, how it's filed. There is no document number, but there's a typed comment this went out to all station chiefs and media contacts and media assets. 
of the CIA. And even though, in theory, it wasn't distributed in the United States, certainly it was. And it said, instead of having a document number, it said, uh, destroy, I would no longer need it. Basically <laughs> destroy it. Burn after reading. Um, I'm surprised I never saw that before, and I don't think anybody else did either. Or at least didn't notice it, because the document was so important, you know, so amazing. But, you know, this was, it basically... It's a very long document. The, the document itself is about four pages long, and it's followed by probably close to 30 pages of articles that have been written about the assassination. And it tells, you know, get in touch with your uh, assets. Book review editors are right. uh, particularly, you know, and we know book reviews have been used to kill conspiracy books over and over and over again. Make sure you give this one a bad review. <laughs> yeah. And and it, it was uh it was a how to. It was written in nineteen sixty seven. It was reviewed and uh, you know, it must have leaked because it was reviewed under a FOIA request, Freedom of Information request, in nineteen seventy four and it was finally declassified in nineteen ninety four. So when I was writing all my early stuff uh, I had no idea. None of us, none of us knew about this document. We all certainly had heard the word conspiracy theory a thousand times. Right. This is where it started. And, you know, when you look at what Bernstein revealed, and when you look at what we now know about Operation Mockingbird, you know, I noticed, I, I, I pulled up WikiLeaks things today, and they said it was, you know, Operation Mockingbird was an alleged <laughs> uh, programmed by the CIA to infiltrate the media. Alleged. Alleged. You know, it, it, it wasn't alleged. I mean, it's been documented a thousand ways till Tuesday. When you look at these things, it connects so many dots. When you look at it, well, C.D. Johnson was in charge of psychological warfare in the Eisenhower administration. He was, in, you know. The head of Life magazine? Yes, he later became executive editor of Life magazine. He was the one that arranged for timing to buy the Zapruder film. Yeah. And withhold it from the public. Right. All right, we need to take a break in this fascinating conversation. So let's do that now. And then after that, come back and continue our discussion with political writer Jerry Polikoff. Don't go away. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.